This morning on the Jake Feinberg Show, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk. Thank you so much for being part of the program, and what a high honor it is to bring back a guy who, uh, based off our first interview, people came out of the woodwork and were just like, you know, not only did they show and talk about their affection for this man, but also just like the revelations within it, the poetry that he used while he described his life and just sort of his point of view was uh, really heartening for a lot of people in a, you know, in a time when, uh, like we talked about, uh, the emperor has no clothes in music for probably the last couple of decades at least. And uh, I get the feeling that uh, this cat might have another chapter or two left uh, in his bag. Uh, His, uh, Music has cumulative results, and I think he understands that in some ways a lot of his art and a lot of his tunes will live on long after he's left this planet. Ned Doheny, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, Jake. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Can you talk about um, how you view music? Do you believe it has cumulative results? And what I mean by that is... uh, I, I, I was inundated by my peer group after the interview, a couple people in particular who just were just pleased, tickled about how much they just, they were walking on the beach in Florida listening to it and the interview. And so for instance, a tune like get it up for love. I, I have a friend who's a musician. He's also a DJ. He says women everywhere now swoon to that song when he puts it out. And I just kind of, is good. Was that, yeah, no, and I just I you know I, I wonder when you when you look at your at your music and I mean literally I walked into a store here in Tucson and your records now they were signed by you so you graced it with a with a pen but I mean these do you feel like what is your take on the idea that something that you did at one time that you might have really thought was fantastic catches fire thirty or forty years later. What does that mean to you as an artist? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly something that I would never have imagined. But um, uh, at one point I was, I was speaking sort of disparagingly about the music business as, <laughs> as I am wont to do. There are a lot of really wonderful people who, you know, the, all the people who became successful aren't necessarily all the people who deserve to be successful. There's some great people that lived out their lives without ever tasting any kind of success. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough business. Anyway, there was a great lawyer in town named Al Schlesinger. Mm. I'm not sure if he's alive. I haven't talked to him in ages, but it's rare that a lawyer is loved by one and all. So he, he was a great personality in town. And I was talking about some piece of music I'd done and, you know, like what difference does it make? Grumble, grumble. And, and he said, uh, you never know what's going to happen when you put something out. Exactly. And I thought, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the idea, and we, you talked a little bit about this earlier, I mean, in in our last interview about people that are disheartened by um, what's happened to music and and the um, and the free speech necessary to keep it alive and you know all kinds of tangential art forms that rely on 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 freedom, right? Yeah. And I think. once again, you know, when you put something out, you just, 
you just never really know. I, I do find it a, li- a little bit baffling because, you know, at this point I'm kind of a coot. So I, I you know, to have this stuff be relevant so long after it was act carefully knitted together is a little mind-boggling, <laughs> truthfully. I mean, I think some of it has to do with you know, it's so hard to know at the time the significance of what you're putting together. But, you know, just I have, you know, I, I came in this morning uh, bent on playing you this uh, this name, that voice. And I don't expect you to know who it is, but I really wanted to play this for you. And then I have a question for you and we'll come back on the other side. Yeah. OK. Yeah. And so Harvey and a, a bunch of other really great drummers learn how to use, they learn how to work drum machines, and they were putting drum machine tracks on pop records and some of the fusion records because that was the sound of the day. Let me continue. Please. Uh, the bass thing ended up being keyboard bass for a while. Uh, all of the string stuff became synthesized. All of the brass stuff became synthesized. And I would go to a record date. You couldn't sample a saxophone sound. It's got too many overtones in it. It's too weird. <laughs> Yamaha wanted me to wanted to synthesize my sound. They wanted to put my sound in one of their synthesizers, and they were going to give me a fee, but they weren't going to give me royalties. They wanted to pay me a flat fee to synthesize my sound and put it in a and put it in one of their one of their computers. But they only wanted to pay me one time, and they didn't want to pay me royalties, and they were going to take my sound. Right. This is unbelievable. So you can't do that with a saxophone sound, really. So anyway, it got down to a point in the 80s, 1982, 83, around then, because the synthesizer was a new toy. I would be the only acoustic player on a record. It would be my the only other acoustic. It, you know, you couldn't just run out and do a bunch of dates anymore because they weren't there. The music business changed totally in, 19, in 1982-83. Ned, that was uh, an interview I did with, uh, I'm not sure if he ever appeared on your albums, but uh, the legendary Ernie Watts. Oh, yeah. And, you know, he was talking about Harvey Mason before. What he was saying was, I mean, the, he'd come in, they learned how to use the Lindrum machine, they'd program their beats, and that, those were the beats, that were, those were the rhythm tracks that were being put on pop records. And I go back to the, this stuff that we were just talking about, the cumulative effect. The idea at that time is that human beings were making the music. It was more than just a vocalist singing it. I mean, you were all hitting generally in the same room at the same time. You weren't taking these sounds and then the word synthesis is a very bad word it's very detrimental to me and i mean the synthesizers of the early 70s with jan hammer and all those guys in weather report and return to forever chick that's great but when they started to be able to replicate all the different instruments to me that took the authenticity out of the music fast forward now to 2021 where we're living in a complete lack of authenticity, hence a record like Hard Candy comes back into the milieu, comes back into the zeitgeist, because it's basically human beings having a ball in the studio. Tell me, I mean, is there any validity to that? What do you, what do you say to that? Well, no, no, I, I think there is a lot of validity to it. And I think the interesting thing about, first of all, we've gotten used to a, a degraded level of sound. I mean, we all have home studios. I have a home studio. We all have that. And we can get it sounding pretty good. You know, I mean, we think, oh, okay, all right. You know, I mean, everything feels good and all the rest of that. Until you get into a real studio with, you know, right. uh, you know, that is tape driven and all the rest of that. And you hear what it really sounds like when you're able to, to have that level of sonic spread and headroom and all the rest of it. And it just, your mouth drops. I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely stunning what we have become accustomed to. And I would have to say that, you know, I mean, 
I, I, I don't really know how you reprogram a, an entire generation because if everybody in the generation is listening to a certain thing and they accept that as being great, I mean, I'm sure there were people that were uh, then out of shape by rock and roll. I mean, that's kind of, I don't know, it's almost redundant. Yes, of course. I guess <laughs> yeah, it, of in course, some yeah. ways that was the point, wasn't right, it? Right. But, um, you know, I think what a lot of people don't understand is the people that really play it in all the rock and roll records are all big band refugees. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they don't really they don't realize that, that there's a tremendous amount of musicality that uh, went into that simplicity. And, you know, people like Earl Palmer and, you know, the guys that decided that uh, these were the grooves that we were all going to live by. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they were, they had to find their way in a world that had shifted dramatically and probably in some ways was kind of disappointing to them. I mean, it had to be, I mean, making rock and roll records, I don't think, was quite as thrilling as, as driving an orchestra, for example, or a big band, right? Yes. All those people in the room kind of, you know, focusing on the same end. But there is an element of that um, in, or there used to be, in recording records live. Right? You know, I mean, let's just say putting tracks together on the spot. And the th I think the thing that's, that people don't understand about computers and drum machines and all the rest of that is that perfection is forgettable. It's easy to forget perfection because it doesn't really engage your body. One of the things about digital recording... ties. Isn't this clear? Look at all that space. But your body would go... What the fuck is this? And because it it didn't it didn't really. Um, Go, I mean, you just it didn't really it didn't really engage you physically because um, uh, your body has a completely an almost feral sense of time, right? Your na well, so first of all, I mean the quant it's it's called quantized rhythm. It's just up and down. There's no way to feel it, and there's no way to dance to it. Well, and also flaws are compelling. Oh, the, the flubs are the best, man. That's where it leads to have you. Can you talk about, uh, I mean, I've talked to Dean Parks and all these guys who talk about, you know, David Spinoza hit a clam on right place, wrong time. Arif Mardin's like, keep it. We're keeping it. It became a hit. Was there anything along those lines in the studio with you where, you know, you can still listen back to it today and appreciate that it was a flub, but it actually made the tune? Yeah, I mean, there isn't anything that kind of leaps out at me because <laughs> I was so, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, but you, I, I mean, I, I want so you to just, I want you to just riff on this because you are, na you're, you're right in the zone. It's like this idea of perfection. You can't feel it. I just want you to keep going there. That is so huge because my daughters would be like, what is he talking about? Well, the interesting thing is, I'll go back to the physicality of it. So yeah. let's just say that the digital world was expedient because it was convenient and it had enough perks sound-wise so that people forgot how little it meant to their bodies. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, if you go to the 70s and you've got a bunch of people in a room, you are t basically talking about um, levels, increments of rhythm and space that are unprogrammable Absolutely. i mean you know even a drummer sitting by himself playing a backbeat none of those measures will be alike i mean they may sound really alike and we love that but a lot of times um you know if, if you if you just if you focus you'll see that everything is slightly different and that's true of everybody in the room so there is kind of a, a, a synergistic kind of push-me-pull-you thing that goes on with people. And, and also, in respect to all that, the idea that you're on the clock and the idea, so you're, okay, so you're playing beat the clock in, in, a, you know, in addition to what you're trying to get down, <laughs> and you're with people who you respect, so you don't want to look like a moron, and you're really in the you're you're trying to you're you're in the capture mode, so you're trying to get everything as 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 good as you can possibly make it, and then grab it before it disappears. 
So, you know, in a way, sometimes when you listen to tracks, I know this is going to sound really weird, but they almost sound like animals. They sound like like mammals sometimes <laughs> when 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 the, when the groove is 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 fierce and everybody's oh, it's so kind of, primal, man. It's, it's so yeah, and everybody's sort of hugging it in a bit of just a, a really kind of spectacular way. Mm. It almost ta- it takes on a life of its own. It is beyond the sum of its parts, and I think. Um, part of the problem with programming your stuff and your little home studio is that it's, it's always the sum of its parts. <laughs> That's all there is. I mean, certainly good composition will always shine through, but um, even that really begs for interpretation and some level of spontaneity that <clears throat> can't really be recreated. I guess maybe, uh, like, is there so much going through my head right now i mean i cannot believe all the the per, all the rhythm on this hard candy album i mean they're all my buddies john heard johnny garen left us i never really met him chuck finley victor feldman on vibes oh uh, god victor feldman i mean what i'm saying is like there was so much percussion there was so much there was a rhythm sections beyond and and and, and i mean i remember i remember interviewing fred tackett the great guitar player, studio player, and, and um, he was doing a uh, some session. Greg Prestopino's yelling, "What the hell is Tackett doing? What is he doing in that?" He was in a room by himself, and he was hitting rhythm tracks. And, and Bill Payne said, "Take him out of the mix. Take him out right now." And the the music felt different. So it was all feeling in the studio. You know, it was just and and I guess against the clock, knowing that you were against the clock. Can you talk about? Uh, something that comes to mind where, you know, it wasn't exactly uh, what you had anticipated going in in terms of the, the way the song was going to work, but uh, maybe there was an extra few bars somebody took, or but you didn't have time to change it, and it went out the way it did, and it and it's, and it made the song. Well, <clears throat> I mean, I, I don't have anything that really pops into my brain so much with that because one of the amazing things about about focusing and about the kind of energy that it takes to focus. Um, I don't know, what is it, alpha waves, I guess, in, in abundance. Yes. <clears throat> that when you finally step away from it, it's almost like you are no longer connected to it and you're hearing it like an audience would hear it. it it's almost like a form of, of self-hypnosis that gets you to the highest level of focus and the best work you can possibly put out at that point. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, you're kind of, you know, when you kind of, you know, shake your head and, and look at what you've done, sometimes you're as shocked as, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've stood in control rooms with people and had stunned silence. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, 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 even the people that make it are baffled by it. You know what I'm saying though? You, it was at that time, I mean, compared to today where you have cats generally, I mean, it could be any generation, but they're spending four hours just to get a bass drum sound. You didn't have time to work that stuff out. You put a couple of overhead mics on, maybe one on the kick. Nothing was there. I mean, it was just go, hit it, and done. There was no time to, I mean, you suck all the soul out of the music if you're perseverating about perfection. And I just wonder, like... What did what did it mean? What did perfection mean to Ned Doheny? What does that mean? What does that word mean to you? Because that's what people think. My gen, my daughters, younger generations, they hear this sound, this quantized rhythm, this compressed sound, and they're totally fine with it. And it's completely pat. It's all pacification. There's no urgency. There's no desperate edge. There's no imperfection. And I just, I, I mean, can you talk about? Um, because I mean, obviously like you're a pretty sophisticated guy, man. You know, you freaking drove a Land Rover, you know, installed panels on it, took it to Southampton. I mean, you knew what you were doing in your life. You weren't a mess, but you were never hung up on like, you just couldn't go back and perseverate on little small things in, on these records. You just had to go in and hit it and do it. So, I mean, what is, what? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, For the most, yeah, look, for, for the most part, I mean, we're all, at a certain point, we have to be, you know, grabbed by the collar and <laughs> kind of pulled off the console. But, you know, I mean, because we'll just keep going. And I think the hard part is knowing 
you asked earlier, when did I fig- figure that everything was in order? And I would, if if I could, if my mind and body could both sign off on it, it was usually okay. <laughs> wow! The, so it was the multisensory physicality of it, and when you well, talk, the physic- the, yeah. yeah, the physicality of it is really important. And like I said, you know, I mean, your body's okay with imperfection, but your mind has a real problem with it. Mm. You know, your mind is sort of, your mind was always meant to be a servant. It wasn't meant to run everything. Um, the other question that I wanted you to talk about, mm. the LP, well, this is just from a fan, the LP photo shoot in Mexico. Uh, for, <laughs> can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I, I, um, I, there, there, there used to be what's well, still there, but I'm sure it's not as wonderful as it used to be. There was a place in Mexico called Palmia, and, and it was um, on the very tip of uh, Baja, California. And you used to have to take, you would take a plane to, oh God, I forget the town. Um, Puerto Vallarta? I, no, it, it, I, I want to say maybe San Diego, and then you would take like a prop plane. Mm-hmm. To pull me in there, and it would land on a dirt runway, and they'd come out and pick you up in a truck. And I knew about this place because I used to go fishing with my dad in the in the Sea of Cortez, right? So, um, I was thinking, <laughs> ever the con, you know? Um, well, we should go. To, <laughs> we should go to Mexico because the light is so good. Wouldn't it be great for an album cover to? You know, I figured at the very least, if the whole thing tanks and comes apart and all the rest of that at least we'll have a lovely vacation in a place i know well and love and then that'll be great so um the guy that shot the cover was a guy named moisha Braca, and he shot boz skaggs um record with um lowdown on it silk degrees right and so columbia or you know cbs wanted me to you know take him and go down there so we went down, and the idea of throwing um, water was, of course, Moisha's Moisha's imagination was in a state of constant movement, and he had a lovely theatrical quality about him, so he would try anything. And he actually, the guy that was throwing the water was not an assistant. There wasn't enough money for that. The guy that was throwing the water was actually a waiter. <laughs> right? Um, and... They, I love when, it. When, they, when we when we finally got the shot and all the rest of that, and we came back, and I was looking at it, it was like they shot me from he shot me a little lower. I mean, he wasn't looking at me straight on; he was down a little bit. So I was kind of triangle shaped. <laughs> totally did. I, yeah. You know, I mean, my I, I had this. My waist was big. My shoulders were small. And there was a little head on top of it. And so I say to the people in the art department, hey, can you, can you balance this out a little bit? I'm looking a little odd. <laughs> so they reshaped me a little bit for the cover, and that was pretty much it. And the, the, the inside thing with the, with the Ray-Bans and all that was me at the old house in Benedict Canyon, where a lot of this stuff was written, almost all of it. And um, I was lying on a diving board. And that, I, that was not Moisha, I think... Who was that? Was that Henry Diltz? Uh, people are, sure. I don't know. I don't, I don't actually own a co- an LP copy of Hard Candy. The people are just like, I mean, I, I, it's, you know, Ned, I got to tell you, man, you are um, an intergenerational phenomena. I mean, the, the, there are, do you, did you get any, I mean, I, I just wanted to ask you about your philosophy as it related to song creation or or albums because you've been especially you know you've been kind of uh your albums have not just come out every year you know so many people just are like oh we have to make an album then we have to tour the album um and sell the you know at least in the modern day whereas like a band like maybe the grateful dead they they actually made songs on on the bandstand and and allowed those songs to come to life and then I mean, they took, they spent seven years not even being in the studio. Um, 
right. you know, and then they got back in the studio and, and made a, a hit that wound up becoming an MTV in the, you know, Touch of Grey. And it, yes. you know, so I just, I mean, you, you had yourself titled in 73, you, um, some of your songs appeared on other people's albums. You, you were a studio, you know, you got called for some studio dates, but can you just talk, and especially to younger cats about your philosophy as it relates to birthing albums because i i mean younger cats they just make album after album after al or ep after ep and if they just sit on the shelf it's not always their fault there's not necessarily a touring circuit things like that but so not at the moment no and 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 i mean well that and i just i want you to talk about it you specifically between 73 i guess hard candy was 76 uh, anyway, yeah, I think so. So just, I mean, can you just talk about like how, you know, you know the the conception, gestation, and birthing of an album for, for Ned Doheny? Well, I mean, the, look, the first album was the first 10 songs. That was it. The second album was the second 10 songs. <laughs> and the third album. <laughs> that was really it. So, I mean, that, but I mean, yeah, like, that, I yeah. Mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I talk to people that, that you know, that oh, I wrote, you know, 15 songs this week, and I always think, really, I wonder how many of them are actually decent. <laughs> and also, you know, I mean, really, that was, that was my life. Like, look, I've never considered myself a lyricist, per se. Hmm. I mean, I have written good lyrics, and I've written bad ones, but I don't really consider myself a lyricist. I actually, you know, most of my poetic rhythm is verbal. So um, getting the music and the, and the words to sync up, that was, that's always the great challenge. And you have to really, we, we spoke about sacrifice in the last, um, our last conversation. Do you remember? Um, I, well, yeah, a little. I might, have used, I might have used a different term, I'm not sure. Like, like a, um, an offering. Like yes, it, it, yes. You, okay, so, so. What I mean by that is what enabled me to get to the point that I got to on those three records was exhausting, I have to tell you, because it required me chasing um, those proportions between um, music and lyrics 24-7 for, you know, I don't know, well, actually a lifetime if you want to look at it that way, mm -hmm. but in the actual writing part, you know, it was constant. It was a constant process. I mean, I didn't have a wife. I mean, I had girlfriends, but nobody that ever really lived with me. Like, I mean, it's not entirely true. That it, it, Around the hard candy time, there, there was a girl that showed up. But, I mean, mostly me and it. And so, and not only that, but the people on Asylum, they were all really good lyricists. I mean, Jackson is, a you know, a fine lyricist, and Henley was a great lyricist, and... Um, and, uh, you know, Neil Young and Joni, God damn it. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were all spectacular. So, and, and these were people to whom these things seemed to come quite easily. Well, Joni especially. They just, like, you know, she just could pick up her pen and fling out reams of poetry. It was, yeah, just flow. It was just, just it sheets was, it of reams. Madness. madness. But, but most most. Poets that are serious, like you know, like Leonard Cohen and all the rest of that, they're like one syllable. They'll they'll agonize over a a line for years, and I totally get that. And you know, trying to make the syllables fit. So let's just say these days we don't really have that level of we don't we're not as concerned about how we sound when we sing certain things. Now there would be people that would say, ah, get it up for love, casual vulgarity, and you cared about that. Uh, in the context of that tune, yes. Right. Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, I think that zeroing in on what you're creating, it has to be something that you would really like if somebody else played it for you. So that's kind of what I mean about getting your mind and body to sign off on it. Now, I'm not particularly prolific. I mean, I've got a, a whole sack full of bits and pieces and one tune i've you know recently that i quite like but um mostly i think what what my comrades and i where we sort of diverge 
was that usually when you when you work really hard and you have some success, in other words, there is a public response. Yes. That feeds your capacity to to raise the bar and create it at a different level. Maybe it satisfies your inner critic. I don't really know. But it seems like that particular energy that comes back to you from what you created is sort of uh, important in getting you to the next level. I never had that. Really? So, yeah. So, I've, I mean, look, there, there were individual people that thought I was wonderful. But on the other hand, you know, success in the marketplace certainly eluded me. I would have to say. I mean, I, you know, I mean, what you're going to do for me was, I think, the only number one record I had, and that was an R&B hit. So that was number one on the R&B chart. Which is so badass. So, That's like Blue-Eyed Soul, man. It's unreal. Well, she is, you know, she's she's a you know treasure by anybody's standards. So there aren't, but, you know, there aren't but a, a tiny handful of women that can sing at that level. Totally. No, but, no. Um, I mean, you're telling me, though, that... Uh, I want to go back to something. You you said the first 10 songs were the first album, next 10 mm-hmm. songs. But, I mean, how yeah. much, I mean, like you said, Cats crank out, they're like, yeah, I wrote 15 songs this week. I mean, how much stuff went in the wastebasket? Or are you telling me that you just went through 20 songs until you got the first, you know, first 10 songs, second 10 songs? I mean, did you... What made the what passed the credibility threshold for you? Like, how did you know that it was? It, it, it met the mind, body experience. But what was the? Because some cats, it's like, oh, look at my prodigious, look at this, this output. But you know, fourteen to the fifteen songs are just awful. So I mean, how how did how did you? Um, was there a lot of cutting cutting room floor kind of stuff for you in that first in that no, actually no i mean the thing is if there was a, if the, if i couldn't make the pieces fit i would just put them aside and um the ones that you know the, the tunes that had a beginning a middle and an end and that i felt i could sing <laughs> sing without undue shame <laughs> usually were you know pretty pretty solid so, you know, it, and, and this is kind of, the, this is the weird thing, and I don't mean to be disheartening, but um, some people are funny, some people aren't, <laughs> you know, and some people can dance, and some people can't. Some people have a groove, and some people do not. Right. Now, you can be grooveless and still wind up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We know this, Right. Well, and, uh, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and you're, you're, just to finish the thought, your criterion for what works, um, part of success requires, I mean, unless you're just lucky, requires ta- taste. I mean, in other words, <laughs> you know, maybe you say to yourself, well, I really like this, and th- nobody hears it yet. I mean, there's a little bit of that in my story, wouldn't you say? A lot. So, I mean, you know, like, uh, we were, each record has been really disappointing in terms of where it went. In the creation of it, it was always joyful. There's nothing more fun than being in the studio with people you respect. But as far as being able to second guess um, where something's going to go and what it's going to do, is uh, beyond our ability, really. Some people see hits really clearly, people like Clive Davis, and there have been others, you know. And, but a lot of times that very thing is, makes the tune more generic than special. Absolutely. Just, yeah, totally. I mean, it's... Well, I mean, you live through it. I mean, did you feel... You're, so you're telling me that Shaka covered this tune and but i mean as far as was there outside of success is all relative in my mind but it's just Mm -hmm. like you know when you're can you just talk about driving down uh the road Uh, i mean it was not i remember talking to vinnie caliuta the drummer and he's like i'd be driving around los angeles before i moved there and there'd be pictures of School, school days, Stanley Clark. These were billboards on the street. Like music ran, right. dictated our, they dictated culture, whether or not you made it big or not, or successful, whatever. I'm just wondering about 
a time when you really first heard your you know your uh, your tune on the radio when you were driving in your car down the street that to me was the most magical part of america at one time when you had this regionalism before all the record companies bought up all the independent record companies and then every radio station became streamlined from maine to san diego i mean there was a period of time where you could press a record and then next thing you know somebody's putting the vinyl on and you're driving down the road and you're hearing your song that to me is magic come on that's like that's you know i mean certainly that's a seminal experience in the life of you know of any artist i mean whether even if you know the people that became giant all remember hearing it pop out of the radio for the first time pretty amazing it's kind of fun to hear it now too actually yeah man i mean what was did you hear um that was the one thing i wanted to ask you about because if i'm hearing you correctly you didn't consider yourself a great lyricist but you're definitely you can write good i mean you have some poetry there but you didn't have necessarily a partner did you have a like you know where garcia had you didn't Uh -uh. okay so like no and I, you know, honestly, look, my, you know, I write, I write pretty decent lyrics. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to denigrate myself too, too severely, but um, there are just those people whose poetic sense is just as ephemeral as, as the ability to have a groove or be funny. Right. You know, some people just, man, it pours out of them and you, you know, you pull your hair out because you have to beat your head against the tile to make something, to cough up something. But I mean, you know, once once the once the article is set, once the lyrics and the music are comfortable with each other, and your mind and body has accepted them, then there's there's nothing that you need to do. But there are still to this day, there are still lyrics and tunes that I I I, I never I just can't let go of. I mean, they're good enough, but they're not as good as I think they could be. So, you know, I mean, I'm still in, in a way, I'm still writing everything I ever wrote. Uh, it's, 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 it, it, it's, it's the nature of things. Well, also, it's fair to say that you're, I mean, you must have heard this. I'm just reading this review here. Uh, this is Hard Candy, a real masterpiece. So surprised that Ned Doheny hasn't gotten the well-deserved attention he is worth. Just listen and be impressed. Was that something that you, it, it was people would say, I just don't know where this belongs, where this music belongs. Yeah, yeah. Is that, yeah. you know, because that's, that, and that's not, and that was just being, you. it wasn't like you trying to be extra crafty. It was like, that's just the way it came out. You wanted to have, you wanted it to swing. You have all, the, you have a horn section in this, you know. Did Cropper, what did Cropper do to enhance the album, if, if at all? I mean, I love Cropper, but I mean, you know. Yeah, me too. Did he? Can you talk about what made him a, an effective uh, uh, producer? Well, I mean, you know, I, I love Cropper. I, I, you know, he'd always been a huge hero of mine, and I think what really convinced him to produce the stuff was the tune, the first tune I wrote with Hamish, which was "The Love of Your Own," right? Mm. And he heard that and went, "Okay, we do that." Um, mostly, he didn't have particularly much to do with the way the songs were built as songs those were all more or less done before we went in the studio with the exception of to prove my love which was simply um a chorus a central melody uh, the way it's constructed on the record you know we we did on the spot really but um can you talk about how you did it on that's very interesting i mean I, that's what i'm talking about that spontaneous creation well, that that was really great. Well, just, I'm going to finish one question that you asked me. Go ahead. You, you said you said um, uh, people being surprised that you know that that I wasn't more successful and in, in in I don't know exactly how. No, you you, you, it, you, could, you couldn't you they couldn't pigeonhole you. They didn't know what genre. No, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Okay, so Cropper used to say to me when he listened listen to the record, he said, it "Sounds like a medley." <laughs> he said, it "Sounds like he said all the songs are so different from each other. It sounds like a melody a medley." Right. And and when I was at one time I was in Tana's and it was after Hard Candy came out and Clive Davis came up to me and he said if I had any idea how good this record was going to be I would have signed you because he turned me down after the first record after I left Asylum. Wow. 
And then, oh, here's a this is a great story. I've, I've told this before, but you know, so I'm at CBS Records, right? And and Boz Skaggs has come out with Lowdown, and you know, Lowdown is certainly on the list of perfect records. It's a perfect record. It is. So um, he, we were sort of in the same part of the musical galaxy not really in my opinion particularly i think we're very different there was also a guy named walter egan who it's like the three of us were kind of boz was the top dog and and walter and i were the two lesser dogs and um you were just getting enough to get by you know yeah, yeah. we were you know and 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 they really liked us at cbs a lot as a matter of fact the the uh, head of the a and r department you know i'm sitting in his office in new york and he said, you know, uh, listen, I was wanted to ask you something. He said, I, I, I wrote out the lyrics to Valentine, and I want to, you know, I, and, and, I, and he showed me this lovely page, calligraphy and all the rest of that, and I wanted to give them to my wife. Is that okay with you? <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's great. I said, that's wonderful. That's so sure, cool. absolutely. Yeah. That's, please do that. And then they let me go. Oh, my God. So, you know, <laughs> you know. Oh, my God. Try and factor that into your, you know, mid twenty year old brain. And so now, when you were saying, you know, all this stuff is now all of a sudden people are finding interesting what the people that worked on all believed in so fervently when we were making it. So odd to, uh, you know, time is so elastic. It is amazing that this. I just feel like there are people that are searching for, you know, listen, it's, uh, you may not be able to, um, you know, know what bin the, the Doheny, Doheny records go in. But the point is that now with pop music, rock music, whatever you want to say, you know, it's, it's not, it's understandable to people. It's, it's danceable. It's a human groove. And, um, and it sounds fresh compared to, I mean, it just stands out along with, you know, the other, in my mind, you know, the, you want to say Steely Dan or Seals and Crofts or, you know, things that just, um, you have big band refugees playing the music and everything, every track sounds different. And that is, people are looking for that in pop music because there is such a f- formula trip. I mean, did you... Why did why did Asylum? How did it work? They only you only had a one record deal, and no, no, no. I had no. I, 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 you know, I had however many records. But you know, Geffen was very particular about who he endorsed. He never really heard what I did, and and I, you know, I don't blame him for that. He was of the Laura Nero, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Jackson. He was of that school, you know, and he didn't. You know, as Joni once said to me, you know, you're, she, she said, I thought with your rhythm skills, you'd be famous by now. So, you know, he didn't, I don't think <laughs> he really so got, I don't yeah. think he really got the, he didn't the, get the, it. Physica- the physicality of it. You keep going back to that physicality. I mean, he, I, I'm just surprised at that time he didn't get it because, I mean, he was up there <clears throat> doing, if I could only remember my name with, with Crosby and 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 Neil Young and 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 Michael Shreve and all the I mean talk about rhythm I mean it, it, to me it was uh I just you know to me it's like it, it, I love talking to you man because it's just like uh, I just it's so insane that well first of all they you know I mean you know they're obviously they've replaced live bands and bars with a DJ and but the Doheny records are like I mean, they're just, they're flying, man. They're just spinning every night. The music is out there. People are dancing, physicality every night. But yet, you're sitting there thinking, (laughs) my God, I mean, it's been a bit of a a time lapse. I mean, it's just a bit of a time warp. It's really quite fascinating stuff. But I mean, in general, Geffen, you just, you you actually on your own accord were like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, they they look. I mean, I, uh, the other day I was up in it was my tenth anniversary. My wife and I were up in Santa Barbara, and I was sitting under an oak tree, um, listening to um, there 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 was a, a record that uh, that the Numero Group put up put out called um, Separate Oceans, hmm. 
I don't know if you heard that. You should, you should probably listen to it. It's pretty interesting. Anyway, um, there were a bunch of demos on that. There's the original demo of A Love of Your Own, which is largely the one that ended up on the final hard candy thing. But there were also, um, when I finished the record at Asylum, uh, I w- there were three songs I thought really would have been a- benefited from background vocals. And there was a tune called I Can Dream. There was another tune called Fine Line. And there was another tune called... Eh, it escapes me. I'll blurt it out when I remember yeah, it. Please. But so I talked to um, I talked to Henley and Fry at that point. I said, "Listen, would you guys mind kind of, let's 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 put background vocals on these three tunes, and then and I think that will give the album put the album more give it a, a, a closer relationship to radio, and maybe you know that's going to be the way to do it." So we did that. And uh, I hadn't listened to those things. It was recorded by Al Schmidt, right? And a uh, brilliant in- engineer who died. Oh, man, rest re- in peace, man. His, recently. Um, his wife is still, tre- uh, she has some trepidation about coming on the show because she's afraid she's going to break down. I really feel for her, you know. What a beautiful yeah, no, guy. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So um, anyway, so I'm sitting under the trees, and I, and I listen to these three songs. And... I have to say, in retrospect, that I believe I was absolutely correct. Of course, I you're correct. Those three tunes, I believe that those three tunes, with the appropriate, with the background vocals on it and a somewhat feistier mix, would have helped put that album over the top. I was sitting under the trees, and my wife came and put her hand on my arm. I had tears in my eyes because, you know, you believe these things to be true. They don't necessarily. Your beliefs are not necessarily borne out, and in relation to asylum. Um, as I mentioned, you know, a while back, I had to come up with the money, my own money, to finish the record because a lot of the dough had already been spent on Jackson and everybody else. So um, I wanted to put those three mixes on the on my record, and there just there weren't the funds to do it. They didn't want to have to change the album art and all the rest of it. So the album went out as it was, and you know. What can I say? You know, even in retrospect, it's kind of, it's sort of love, it's sort of bittersweet. It is both lovely to know you were right and, and, and painful to think of how narrowly you missed the target on that. Um, and you're pretty, you feel based on intuition and instinct that if you had added background folks, those might've, one of those three or all three might've gotten some attention on well it, actually i did we put background vocals oh, God, what was the third song oh you used your own money yeah and 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 i think if those had gone on the record it would have they would have been much more radio friendly but you know i mean it became apparent to me that you know kevin really didn't want to work with me anyway and so at that point i said you know i'm out and he didn't like that very much and you know he was blood grumpier in those days he doesn't have anything to be grumpy about anymore, but, <laughs> you know, in those days, there was more grumping. And also, to go back to your question about Steve Cropper, I mean, Steve Cropper was really responsible for me meeting people like Tower of Power. Sure. I'm still, I mean, Emilio and I are still friends. We, we still talk regularly. That is so freaking, um, what about Doc Kupka and those cats? All, all those guys. I love yeah. them. Yeah, I love them. I, I played a gig at Hop Sings in Venice. With the Tower of Power band, no way. Doing my material. Oh, um, dude, see that, that? How hip is that? Because those cats, there's nobody hipper. Those cats were in the deepest bag of. So they loved your. That was the first time you met them at that session, Hard Candy. The first time I met them was up in Sausalito, and they were putting horn parts on a love of your own, and it just flattened them. They could not believe they loved that tune. So, like I said, you know, Mimi and I have been friends for. Forty years, and um, we talk periodically. I, I, you know, I go and see them when they're in town, and and all the rest of that. But people like, for example, as you said, like Victor Feldman. I got to meet Victor Feldman, and he put a tambourine part on "Get It Up for Love" that almost that kind of made the record. David Foster, Dave pre David Foster back in the in the days of before he became david foster you know yeah when he was when he was a young buck and he really he brought an incredible amount to that record for example the valentine tune was a little bit too much of a period piece for steve and so david put together david put together 
the band that cut that, and it was John Hurd on bass, and David was playing piano, John Guerin on drums, and I was playing acoustic guitar. That whole track is live. Dude, I am John Hurd is a, is one of I love the man. I cannot. He played upright bass. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful! What a ridiculous! I'm sorry. When did? Where was? Who was the brainchild for this fusion of Doheny music with T- Tower of Power live? When was that? I think that was. I think that was actually Steve. And um, like I said, you know, we piled on a plane and went up to San Francisco, and everybody. <laughs> Yeah, everybody. No, I, I, I'm sure it was debaucherous, but I'm just saying. What... No, it was, it, it was, it was, so, it was so much fun. We had the best time imaginable, and you know, Steve was really good at picking. Like, for instance, the the to prove my love thing that we were talking about. That was a groove that I was sitting by myself playing on an electric guitar, um, in one of the sound booths, and um, Steve said, "What's that?" And I said, "Ah, oh, it's a little something I'm working on," and he said, "Let's cut that," and we <laughs> cut it as it was written. And um, the, the melody, da, 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 do, 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 that was there. And um, da, 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 that was there. That, it, but there was no actual words written to it, which I wrote later. I told you about all this. And it, you know, they, they, the TV mix went to England and the Acid House people went nuts over it and all the rest of that. But um, yeah, that was uh, that was uh, an evening's work. God, was that fun! It w- was the just for the record. I just in case I'm mm. trying to track it down the 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 gig with Tower Power that was after you made Heart. Was that late '70s or w- when was that? Um, that would be like probably '75 because wow. yeah, they well they 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 put a I'm trying to remember what else they put horns on. But um, you know, I'm yeah. just—I just also are you, you, is this—is it correct? I'm looking at the All Music Guide, which is not always accurate. But there's <laughs> a, a band here called The Mob, and they their second track on their album is "Get It Up for Love," and that was—it came out a year before Hard Candy did. Does that sound accurate to you? That somebody—that's possible. I mean, when I played that for um, Artie Wayne at. Um, uh, Warner Chapel. He jumped up out of his seat and he said, "You got to demo that." So it could well have been it could well have been mine, or you know, I'm surprised that more people didn't think of that really. But a lot of times, what happened, what you find yourself doing is you find yourself coming up with titles that all of a sudden appear in the in your in your genre at about the same time for reasons that are beyond understanding. On and on was like that on the first album and Stephen Bishop, you know, he then he had on and on and then who knows. I mean I really have no idea. I got another uh I got another voice for you and then we'll come back. Okay. Uh the evening so I had been playing the owner knew me and I played the uh, he, he knew that I played really pretty well, and uh, I played the jam sessions uh, on the uh, couple of nights that they had them. And so uh, the place was packed and late, and, uh, you know, he wanted John to play. So he asked John to let, let me play with him. So Coltrane didn't say, you know, no. He just shook his head, and we went up and we played three or four numbers. And... Uh, for me, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was just trying to keep my cool when I'm up on the stage playing with him. Fortunately, I, you know, I could hold my own. <laughs> I had been practicing with records. And right, so right, right, right. Material. So, you know, it was a trust. Uh, first of all, there was a trust thing. He didn't say, can this guy play? He just, he trusted. There was mm-hmm. this trust. There was, there was an air of, okay, we'll go up and we'll play and uh, McCoy and uh, Jimmy, you know, didn't look at me weird. And obviously I was doing okay. I was, you know, nobody looked at me funny. I was holding my own. But playing with Goldtrain, I realized why Elvin played as intensely as he did because Goldtrain was like a magnet. He was like a chain. You know, he literally, whatever you could pl- throw at him, yeah, he could soak it up like a sponge. He was um, a conscious, uh, you know, a, a, a continuous stream of conscious, creative consciousness. 
but it it was it was more like it was like a sort of a preacher. It was almost like in church, you know. It was like it each set, you know. You think you know couldn't get any higher, and it would go higher it would continuously, evolving, going higher, higher and higher. So, Ned, that was uh, an interview I did with. Uh the drummer Jack D. Jeanette, and he was like, oh, yeah. he was, I mean, Elvin had gotten arrested before the third set in Chicago. Jack's like a teenager. The club owner said, let this guy play. And to me, it's like, it's like uh, this magical uh, sort of behavior trait that is so missing amongst modern music and any genre. The train didn't like make a face or, Say, what are you kidding me? He just let him come up and he held his own and it was like a highlight of his life. And then he said it was like being in a sanctified church with the music getting higher and higher and higher and higher. And, Mm. you know, I just wanted, you know, if I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, you know, as your career, we're still obviously only in the late 70s, but I just wanted to ask you about in your career, you know, either early on or maybe just when you were in the peaks and valleys and the ebbs and flows and the, you know, the of the career, of your career when, you know, somebody that you respected but didn't know you from a hole in the wall basically just was like, yeah, I trust you. I trust the process. I trust Ned Doheny. I want to go higher with Ned Do- I want to give him – I trust him. And, and, and it helped – and it, and it remains to you a magical moment in your life. Um, yeah, I mean, well, this is just a session situation, but there was um, there's a gentleman named Paul Rothschild who sure. produced the Doors albums and all the rest of that. And I, I, Paul and I were friends, and I, you know, he was he was really a lovely guy, and, and he asked me to play on uh, an Elliot Murphy record. I got it right here. Okay. Yep, uh, Lost Generation. Yeah, and so I show up, and the band <laughs> <laughs> and the band is um, Gordon Edwards, Richard T. Ri- Richard, Richard T. Richard T. Yeah, Richard I love T. It. One of my absolute favorite Legends, favorites, dude. and Jim Gordon before he killed his mom. Yep, right before. And there was another guitar player, and me, and so. You know, we started into the whole thing, and, you know, I look, at that point, I had hair down to my shoulders, and I, you know, I look extremely white. I was, <laughs> what can I say? Dude, you were the but, man, dude. Who cares about skin color, man? <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> well, it was really funny, and Gordon Edwards came over to me, and he was wearing one of those little captain's hats. Oh, I love it. And he had some alcohol in a bag that he <laughs> Of course he enjoying. did. I love this and, stuff. And he came over to me, and he said, you know... He said, "You play your ass off." I love it. And I, and he and and you could tell it that it wasn't anything that he was about to give you unless you earned it. And that's what I love about music. That's one of the things I absolutely love about music. What is now explain now to the layperson? Just tell me what tell me what that what you love the, the fact that you can get legitimate, credible feedback from a badass who would not just he's not just telling you he's 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 giving you the real deal yeah well i mean look and people you know players are pretty stingy (laughs) with their compliments that's right unless they're just disingenuous which doesn't really work so well if you know in terms of playing well but um because certainly honesty is at the core of really good music i would have to say but to have, I mean, all these guys played with everybody. I mean, with Aretha and and all the rest of it. I mean, I I don't, you know, I I, I can't say I've ever listened to to uh, Elliot's record. You know, right? No, well, I mean, it was interesting to see you. Uh, so, I mean, I also really want to talk about this. Is so interesting, like uh, because you know you're you're so uh, they they've tried to tie you down and label you as some. Aloof, not aloof, but like, you know, Southern cow, cat, and yet you talked so gracefully last time about Malabar and these 
this Buffalo contingent, East Coast sensibilities. I, you know, is there something else that you want to put on? Not that this is the definitive record, but there, there's just something that you want to clarify that you keep here. For instance, like they're like, wow, you know, this this uh, this hard candy record is one of the preeminent examples of what became known as yacht rock. And it's like, yeah. oh, I don't know. I'm like, you know, yeah, another, another, another term I hate, but I guess it's just, you know, it's a, it's a convenience. I, th- you know? I also, I mean, I think that if it's choppy waters and the records being played, you could dance to it on a ship, you know, I mean, the, 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 here's the point. Is there something else that really sort of, I mean, clearly you've, you know, you're an artist, you know, things do eat you up. You got to learn to let it go. Um, yeah, all that. But is there something else, these Coast sensibilities, where I, I don't think that, that that was just something very refreshing for me to hear. Is there something else that you want to, for the record, sort of set straight about what you're really about, as opposed to the caricature? Well, I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm well known enough to warrant a caricature, but I, I think a lot of people, you know, I mean, this, this blue-eyed soul business is kind of a, I don't know. It's a bit of a misnomer. I don't. Um, I don't really look. I mean, one of the things. My wife is Japanese, and she said one of the things that she that that's so that she finds interesting about my music is the fact that my voice doesn't sound anything like the grooves that I'm playing. Interesting. The Japanese are so they've saved music, man. They say jazz. By the way, go ahead. Well, they're they're you know they they're collectors, you know they they, you know before before crate digging became oh my a, god they, well first of all they also international aren't... pastime they were you know <laughs> they were up to their navels in it and they you know they they were really in 1970 first trip I made to Japan was in 78 they were uh, they were fully invested there were guys the guys in the audience studying how I was playing these inversions. There was a little riot in front of a hotel in Osaka. They were you were. You know, I'd been dropped they by could not. I'd been dropped by everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so Dude, like that a, is I so was, freaking you know, great, man. In the middle man. of a flowering or anything, but they were, you know, they were completely on board and have been ever since. They are. Ju- I mean, I just went to see a show in Boise, Idaho, visiting my brother. It was just this instrumental band, very <clears throat> hard driving. Uh, band and uh the sound engineer told me he's like yo man he's like there's this couple from japan they don't really speak any english they just came over here for this tour and this is not a household band name um and this you know this 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 couple they took a vacation specifically to go on tour with these guys i'm like it hasn't changed they're still locked in to like what they they just feel that groove they know what it feels like they love different kinds of music and they're not into pacification but going back to what your wife said the grooves don't reflect or they're different than the way your vocals come across well i mean you know um i think this is the thing about blue-eyed blue-eyed soul i I think you know i think i don't think soul is owned by any particular group but i think that said you know, I mean, the people that that started it have the most elemental claim to it. I certainly feel that way about the blues. I mean, I see I mean, there are a lot of British musicians that want to call themselves blues men. I have a little trouble with that. Big but, time. But they learn know, from all that. They re- I'm just saying, Blue-Eyed Soul, I mean, it's... It, I'm looking here, like... You went... I mean, Average White Band, George Benz, Roof, Shaka Khan. I mean... That's, but what, so what, you don't think anybody, go, go, continue on with this idea of blue-eyed soul. Well, I, you know, look, I I think we spoke earlier about, you were talking about, um, you know, what is some, you know, what is the process whereby you finally, you know, you write something and complete it and you think, okay, great. Or you're standing in front of the speakers and you think, okay, that's done. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with uh um God, I'm trying to stay on I'm trying to stay on topic here. <laughs> um gosh, 
totally lost my train of and thought. It's, it's <laughs> no problem, man. I mean, I uh, I just feel like, um, you know, at the end of the day, when when I listen to your music, it's like the reason it's impossible to categorize. It goes back to what you said about this big band refugees and and Malabar and the way your cadence is. Your music is danceable music. I don't necessarily think rock and roll is danceable music. Blue, but in, yeah, in, in many instances, yeah, that's true. Right. So, blue-eyed <laughs> soul, soul music, R and B, rhythm and blues. That's where people can. There's a, there's a groove to it, and that's ultimately it's danceable. That's what I'm trying to get at. Well, and also the the point that I forgot about is I think that um, you know we chase the things that we love. You know, certainly. Hmm. I don't think there's anybody or very few people whose art form just springs out of the void completely whole. I think, you know, we are um, kind of seduced by things that affect us for reasons that we don't really understand, except that we just love that stuff and want to be able to play that stuff. So that's kind of also, as I said, as I kind of alluded to earlier, that's also part of the process. Did you make something you love? And are the things, I suppose, if you're going to put a really crass note on it, are the things that you love commercial? And if they're not, then either you have to turn yourself to some, to, to, into another iteration of yourself, which, depending on what form that takes, could be either dishonest or groundbreaking. <laughs> But ultimately, you know, when you stand in front of it, it's, you know, can I sing these lyrics to people I don't know? And when I play this tune for other musicians, will they be ex as excited to play it as I was to write it? Well, we were we chased love again. I got a, I got another interview right now, Ned. But let, let's <laughs> let this. You're a busy lad. Yeah. Well, let's okay. let's this breathe for a minute. But I, I I'd love to do another session down the road. It's I really. I mean, what's amazing is like maybe what you did in 75 wasn't commercial, but somehow now it's just it's vibrating all over the world in commercial in disco nightclubs all over the place. And there's there's it there's just something about the cumulative results of music that it's unquantifiable, man. So I would cont continue to create and and stay the course and, and just. Just keep being Ned Doheny, man. You, I mean, I'm telling you, I, the amount of people that were like, that came out, my friends that just loved, I mean, even in the way you talk, there's poetry. So, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to puff you up. I'm just saying. No, 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 that's okay. I, I you know, it, it's much appreciated. I'm, I'm glad you went to the effort to, to track me down. Also, I wanted, um, yeah. if you have a chance, g grab the, um, the Numero Group vinyl, the, uh, yeah, uh, and what's separate it called? Two, oceans. two. Uh, yes, yes. No, yes. separate, separate oceans. Let me check that out. All right, yeah, we'll get on it, and uh, I'll let. And then you will hear. Then you will hear the songs that Henley and Fry sang on, and and you will hear the demo of "Get It Up for Love," which is about twice as fast and sounds like ant music. <laughs> Insects, insect music. I love it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> love always, Ned. We'll talk soon, brother. You got it. Thanks, man. Bye bye. Later. Another chapter with Ned Doheny, and we'll be back on The Jake Feinberg Show.